0: Well, good morning. Um, Once more, I have the privilege and honor of inviting you to open up your Bible or point your Bible to the book of 1 Peter, where we will be spending the next 45 minutes or so of our morning uh, peering into God's wonderful, inerrant, inspired word from the first letter to Peter. And I would like to remind you that This book that you hold, or this app that you point to, is nothing less than a miracle. That We live in a day and an age where it's really unprecedented in history, in that we not only have uh, access to God's Word, but we have access to more resources to understand God's Word than any people in the history of the church. Have you ever considered this? That through the internet and through the advance of some technologies, now you have in your hand, we have more manuscripts to confirm that what we have is actually God's Word. We have more resources to understand the original languages, to know that what we're reading is right and and rightly interpreted. And this is something that is altogether unknown in, in the history of the church. You live in a very unique time in history, and I just wanted to remind everyone that this is, un, in no uncertain terms, a miracle of God, what we have before us. So as we begin these next couple of verses in First Peter, I don't want to overlook the supernatural hand of God to bring you these words um, and uh, to speak them to us, because I remind you, this was, this, these words were given to an impetuous blue-collar fisherman. 2,000 years ago, and he communicated them to exiles, which God dispersed in Asia Minor, and which is modern-day Turkey, and those words were not just dispersed to them to be read to them, but those words were retained and brought to us, who are also, as we learned last week, elect exiles, which is why we call this this series in First Peter, elect exiles. And so the Apostle Peter's point in Reaching these people with this word was to encourage them and to in, cause them to endure during this time of exile. And God, the Holy Spirit, saw to it that they received these words and that those same words were then communicated to us, in order that we might also endure our time as elect exiles. So, if you will, point your Bible to First Peter chapter one. We're going to be reading. Uh, we're going to be taking our time in verse three, four, and five a little bit of six, but I want to start reading from the very beginning of the letter. First Peter, chapter 1, beginning at the beginning of this book. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope, Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we agree with our brother who is in your presence now, the Apostle Peter, when we say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that according to your great mercy, you've caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of your Son from the dead to this inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and unfading that you are keeping in heaven for us. For us. We're being guarded by God's power for a salvation ready to be revealed to us. Would you give us understanding in these words? Would you move upon your people and unlock that understanding? Give us the eyes to see it, and the ears to hear it, the heart to receive it, the feet to walk it out. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you're using a pew Bible that's uh, provided for you in the pew ahead of you, we'll be on page 702 as we kind of work through these verses. First Peter chapter three, beginning. First Peter chapter one, beginning at verse three down to verse. Six is where we will spend our time together. The first thing I would like you to see as we kind of work our way through these three and change verses is this. This is the first thing I want us to see in this passage that soaring doxology comes from solid theology. And those are big words, and they're not meant to just be big words for the sake of impressing your friends with big words. Those words are important words. The word doxology means the praise of the people's hymn of praise. It's something we sing in praise to God. That's what doxology means. And theology is the study of God. And so my first point that you see in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, is that soaring doxology, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Uh, in this you rejoice. That soaring doxology is the result of solid theology. I think some folks have the impression that theology is stuffy and dry. It's uh, maybe like chewing on a cheap cut of steak that's been overcooked. You're just gnawing on it and gnawing on it. Pretty soon you can't even talk because your jaw's so tired And that's what theology feels like. You don't study theology. It's kind of reserved for people in academia who wear pleated khakis and bow ties. That's the kind of person who studies theology. And that's what you think, that maybe this is who does theology. It's not stuffy and dry. Theology, the study of God, is life-giving and joy-inspiring. It gives rise to high praise. And so I might say that the deeper you study God, the higher you praise God. The deeper your study of God, the higher the praise of God. As an example, consider the prayer of a man or a woman with a wrinkled face from years of faithful service to the Lord. Compare her prayer to the prayer of a five year old, and you'll understand what I mean. The other night, my Lillian, she was praying for dinner, and she asked Jesus during her uh, dinner prayer that nobody in our family would be stung by bees that day. It's like 35 degrees outside and spitting snow, but that's what was on her head. It's pure. It's a simple prayer. It's a sweet prayer. And as a father, my heart rejoices when my little ones pray. But when you compare her prayers to the prayers of an 85-year-old woman who's been in Jesus for seven decades, who's seen suffering, who's seen her husband die of Alzheimer's, who's who's went through difficult times, who's seen the Lord provide for her, who's who's rejoiced when God gave her dozen grandchildren and suffered through the loss of her father and mother and maybe even her husband. When she goes to the Lord in prayer, her prayer versus the prayer of my five-year-old, it's not even on the same plane. They're different. She knows joy far higher than my lily. She knows sorrow far deeper than my lily. And she knows God's hand in her life far greater than my lily. And so then when she sings how great there are, she is singing her life. When my lily sings it, it's a catchy tune. Deep theology produces soaring doxology. It sort of works... In reverse, too. That a shallow theology will produce a shallow doxology. And I think this is absolutely the reason why so much of Christian praise and worship music is about as theologically deep as the kiddie pool. It's safe for all the ages, strangely warm. It's, it's, I'm not trying to be offensive here, but so much of it, it, feels like I'm taking Jesus to a high school dance rather than following the sovereign God of the universe through suffering to the ends of the earth. And I think shallow theology is the reason for shallow doxology. There are plenty of great exceptions, and I rejoice and thank God for those things. And I think Corey and Mary are doing a fantastic job at choosing songs that are not just catchy, but songs that remind us of the gospel and cause theology to be birthed in our heart and responded in our lips with doxology. So thank you for doing that for us. The Apostle Peter begins to address these elect exiles with soaring praise of God. And I I think there are a number of reasons for him doing so. One of the reasons I think he does this is because praise just has a way of getting us out of ourselves. Have you noticed this? That when your attention, when you come into church, your attention, it might be on your week, on the problems and the difficulties and the struggles and trials of the week, which has just transpired, but then you come into God's presence in praise and worship and you lift up your voice and all of a sudden your focus is less on your navel and more on God in heaven and now your focus is lifted high and all of a sudden the problems of this present age, they grow strange strangely dim in light of the God you serve. So praise, it has a way of causing us to focus on the God who is above us, who is greater than us, who is the all-powerful one, the all-knowing one, the all-loving one who can deliver us. And as we look away from our problems, Jude says, this is what happens. We call upon Him who is able to to keep us from falling and to present us blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. That's one of the functions of praise. It's one of the reasons why we've chosen to do it at the beginning rather than at the end. Because you come in here burdened from the week's just sillinesses. Just all of the things that, you know, you just Cluttered up your, 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 the last six days of your life. And then you come here and, and it shifts your focus up to Jesus. So he starts off his letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which I find a, to be a great way to open a letter to elect exiles suffering in the nation's. And then he goes on to say this. You've been born again to a living hope. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Born again to a living hope. That phrase born again, whatever it means. However, Peter intends on using that phrase born again. It comes to us according to His great mercy. God caused us to be born again according to His great mercy. So what is the basis of you being a Christian, of being a born-again Christian? It is the great mercy of your God. And that is incredibly humbling because... That means that when God saved you, it wasn't because something, you had something to offer his team. You weren't a first round draft pick. He didn't look at the spiritual combine and look at you and say, this is the guy I want on my team. This is a gal whose talents would fit my team. I have a need in me that I need to save this person in order to bring them to me. The, the reason God chose you was according to His great mercy. He saved you because there wasn't anything. You weren't running the 40 in 4.1 seconds. You were running it in 8 seconds. You weren't jumping and touching the top of that little stick they do at the combine. You couldn't jump at all. He looked into your life. He saw the pitiful situation you've created for yourself. And he said, mercy, I'll save him. I'll save her. Because of my compassion. That was the basis of your salvation. So you and I gave God no reason to save us. It was according to His mercy. The process of becoming a Christian, of being born again, was something that was done to you and for you, but not because of you salvation was something god did to you and for you but it was not something that god did because of you and that fact alone once it's established is going to be sort of the thing that peter uses to set up a lot more that he's going to say later in this letter is that you were chosen because god wanted you god saved you because god had mercy on you. The phrase in the ESV, "He has caused us to be born again," is one word in the Greek language. The New Testament was written in the in, in Koine Greek, and it's a, it's a it's a far more complex language than English in many ways, and so. When the translators of of the New Testament were reading this word, the best way to put it in English language was to say, He he has caused us to be born again. It's all one word. Literally, it means he, he He beget us again. That God the Father gave you new life. He literally gave you a second birth. So if you were a Christian, when you became a Christian, it's like God, you were born all over again. Literally breathed new life into your dead body. The Bible says that you were dead. We read it in Ephesians 2, and we were going through Ephesians. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. So sometimes we have the wrong idea of what it looked like before we were Christian. Spiritually speaking, you were dead. It's not like you were reaching for God and trying to find Him and trying to, you know, search out God. And then all of a sudden, you know, God was lost in the woods and you went looking for Him. You found Him. Oh, look, I found Jesus. You were dead. And God spoke life into you. He gave you new birth. And that phrase, born again, is not, that's not Peter's phrase, he borrowed that phrase. He borrowed it from Jesus. Jesus had a secret admirer named Nicodemus. And Jesus told Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So in order, what Jesus is saying is in order to get to, to, get to heaven, to go to heaven, you have to be born again. You can't go there in your current state. You have to be made new in order to go there. You have to be born again in order to go to heaven. So how did this happen? How did, you, how did God cause us, in His great mercy, He caused us to be born again to a living hope. How did that happen? What was the thing God did with you, for you, to you, to cause you to go from death to life? The answer to that is a little bit later in First Peter. If you're still in First Peter chapter 1, you can read it with me. It's down in verse 24. Uh, 23. Let's go to 23. Verse 23. First Peter 1, 23. Since you have been born again, there's our phrase, not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Through the living and abiding Word of God. Skip down to verse 25. And this Word, the living and abiding Word of God, is the good news. What's another word for the good news? Gospel. The gospel that was preached to you. You see how Peter put these together? God caused us to be born again through a living and abiding word of God, which the good news, the gospel was preached. The way God brought you into new life out of death into life was the gospel was preached to you. He brought it to you. He caused you to hear about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And something happened. You 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 heard that, you realized you were a sinner. You realize that you were helpless in that state, and there was no one who could help you except Jesus on the cross, whom God sent to die and pay the penalty for that sin. And you heard about Jesus dying on the cross, and you looked to him and, and you put your faith in him, you trusted in him. And in that moment, God made your salvation effective. You went from death unto life, he gave you a new life. You were born, literally born again. all of that should be very humbling and yet at the same time also very empowering it means that nothing that i did made me a christian it was all with god and that personally means a great deal to me because i can't remember the date of my conversion I grew up in a Christian home. My dad was a pastor. At some point, as a young man, it just made sense to me. I realized I was a sinner and I repented of my sin. I put my faith in the Lord Jesus. But I can't point to a moment where God broke me and like drew me to the altar at a church camp or responded to an invitation to the altar. I can't point to a time where i was at the feet uh, at the base of an altar weeping and snot and tears i don't all the drama of my conversion happened in palestine 2000 years ago i don't remember the drama happening in here i just said make sense save me i'm a sinner i need you that's and i became a christian and so knowing that god was the one who brought to me and knowing that it wasn't some like that I said or something that I did, there was no formula I applied to me, means a lot because that means I'm saved even though I don't remember my conversion. You see, you don't need your birth certificate to know you're alive, to know you were born. No one needs to hand you a piece of paper that says you were born. You just say, I'm alive. I know I'm alive. I'm, I'm, I'm breathing. I'm moving. My heart is beating irregularly, but it's beating. I'm aware. That's what makes me alive. I just know I'm alive. So how do you know you're a Christian? you just, you're alive. You love Jesus. You love the scriptures. You hate sin. You're alive. That's how you know. So you don't have to point to So somebody says to you, how do you know you're a Christian? Like, how do you know that you're saved? Well, I'm a new person. I have new desires. I have new passions. My priorities are way different than they used to be. I actually like going to church. I actually like contemporary praise and worship music. It's the weirdest thing in the world. I actually like reading my Bible. The things that used to give me pleasure that I've now realized are sinful, I hate them. More than that, I hate that I return to them like a dog returning to vomit. I hate it. That's how I know. As much as I know that I'm alive in this moment, I know I'm alive in Christ because He saved me. In the new birth, you become a new person. You have new wants, and and new desires. You still sin, but you hate that you still sin. You want to please Jesus more than you please yourself. This is manifested in the difference. In the it's a, it's a manifest difference in the way that you handle the resources. It's a manifest difference in, in the way you handle adversity. It's it, it's a gigantic difference in the way you handle your talents, the way you look at your time, the way you approach money. the way you, we, we were talking in, in one of the discipleship classes, I think it was yesterday morning, we were talking about how, as a Christian, because of the mission of God becoming known to you, God brings you in, gives you a new purpose, your new birth, new purpose, new life, changes everything, literally changes everything. And so you look at almost everything from a different point of view. You look at uh, the refugee crisis from a different point of view. You look at immigration from a different point of view. And suddenly you hear political pundits try to kind of wrestle through these issues. And something just doesn't sit right. It's like, there's something missing here. It doesn't doesn't make sense to me. That seems very self-centered. It seems very egotistical. Because the mission of God has changed the way you look at people who don't know Jesus. So rather than drawing boundary lines and saying, you stay over there, I'll stay over here so that you don't affect my life, I don't affect your life, you'll say, I will give all that I have to serve God's mission and go into your place where you don't even want me to be so that I can tell you about your Savior. That's part of the new birth. Peter then adds, you are born again to a living hope, to a living hope. Hope. Hope is a tremendously powerful thing. Tremendously powerful. Psychologist and author Dr. Dale Archer wrote an article in Psychology Today a couple years ago, and this is what he said about hope. This is a psychologist, non-Christian. If I could find a way to package and dispense hope, I would have a pill more powerful than any antidepressant in the market. As long as a patient, individual, or victim has hope, they can recover from anything and everything, End quote. That's from a secular psychologist who can't even really define in scientific terms what hope is. It is a tremendously powerful thing you were born again to a living hope. We see how powerful hope is in Ohio just about every four years when millions of dollars are spent in swing state Ohio to convince you that this politician is the one you should put your hope in for the future. The problem is, is that what assurances do we have that the person who is on the screen saying what they are going to do, what assurances do we have that they're actually going to do the thing that they say they're going to do? And as you look at the political landscape today, I would say you probably don't have much. The average person doesn't think you have much. So is this hope that they're promising you on the TV, is this a live hope? Or is this hope dead? But Peter says, through Jesus Christ, God has caused us to be born again to a living, a living hope, which, according to him, was guaranteed to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The hope that God has brought to you, the living hope that he has brought to you, born again to a living hope, was guaranteed to you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So how sure can we be that God will come through for us in the end? And the answer to that is, how empty is the tomb? If you aren't sure, if you have little assurance That God will come through for you and bring to you the salvation that he promises. Verse 5. If you are unsure, one activity you could do, book yourself a plane ticket to Jerusalem. Find Jesus' tomb. Peek your head in there. If he's still in there, no assurance. But if that tomb is empty, everything. through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is our hope, the resurrection. And the resurrection, the way Peter uses it here, is meant to give us confident assurance, confident assurance. Let your hope be what Hebrews 6 calls an anchor, for your soul. An anchor for your it's a fitting metaphor. Hope is an anchor for your soul. You know, an anchor has no function inside the boat. It's it's only functional when it goes outside the boat. Do you see what I'm saying? Your hope, we just saying it is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It's outside of me. I don't have hope in here. I have hope over there in the cross in what Jesus did for me. My hope is an anchor for my soul. So I needn't look to anything in me to be hopeful, but instead I look to Jesus and have every hope an inheritance, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. I like how the NIV translates this verse. It says, an inheritance, and it uses this these three words, uh, this little triad, triad here. It says, uh, that can never perish, spoil, or fade. F.W. Beer's commentary on this passage, he says, what this means is that your inheritance has been untouched by death, unstained by evil, unimpaired by time. It is a compounded of immortality, purity, and beauty. And what Peter is doing here is describing the inheritance that's in heaven that awaits every believer. If you are in Christ, there is an inheritance kept in heaven for you, which is undefiled, which is unfading. It is not going away. It is being kept by God in that place for you. Notice how he switches from us kind of language to you kind of language. That inheritance is kept for you. Not only did God save us, as undeserving as we were, but he wrought for us an eternal inheritance in glory in heaven in the presence of God. God saves you from death, gives you new life, equips you to serve him faithfully, then brings you to heaven and rewards you for the faithfulness which he wrought in you in the first place. You see why Peter might soar in praise? When you put it in those terms, when you see what God has done for you, undeserving as, as you are, and then gifting to you this wonderful inheritance, his praise soars. So I hope that you don't think that when God saved you, he took away your freedom. Or that when God saved you, he just wanted to be the tyrant of your life and tell you what to do. Or or when God made you a Christian, it wasn't so that you couldn't do what you wanted with your body. Now he had to tell you what to do with your body. It wasn't to take away your freedom with what to do with your time and money. To give you new life, we were lemmings, mindlessly running towards the edge of the cliff, and God snatched us up and gave us a new life, and gave us a new purpose, and gave us a new mission, and equipped us to do it, and then blesses us for doing it. The Bible says, "You're joint heir with Christ." God's inheritance he is giving to his son is also yours in his son because you are also in Jesus. Daniel Doriani rightly says, An inheritance is a gift based on a relationship, not on wages for performance. An inheritance is based on a relationship. It's not based on wages for performance. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, you have this inheritance. Notice Peter's words here are just stunning. Kept in heaven for you. Now, I don't know how this works. The Bible gives us a little bit of insight into this, but I don't know how this works. Eventually, you're going to get to heaven, and God is going to give you an inheritance that he's kept in heaven for you. And so you're going to get there, and he's going to say, Carol, there's your portion. He's going to say, Corey, here's your big portion over here. He's going to say, Sean, here's your big portion over here. He's going to say, Jamie, you see that little portion over there? That's yours. I'm going to be like, yes, I made it. Yes, I made it. I don't know how it's going to work, but eventually God's going to give you an inheritance. Everything belongs to Jesus. God is giving everything he made to Jesus. And if you are in Jesus, a portion of that is your inheritance. I don't know how it works. But I just know that it's wonderful and it's being kept in heaven for you. Suffice it to say that your inheritance is not here. And so if you're looking to build a nice little empire down here, I'm afraid you're going to be disappointed. Because you're not meant to build your inheritance down here. You're meant to build up your, hev- your your inheritance in heaven. I'll let Jesus say it for me. Do not let do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, or where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Un defiled, imperishable, unfading, kept for you. So as an elect exile, the promise of an inheritance ought to be confidence-building and assurance-giving and joy-inspiring. Let's keep reading verse 5. Rounding third, head home. Verse 5. This verse is almost, almost beyond belief. Who? That's, so you, kept in heaven for you. So Peter's talking to you. You, who? By God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time you've been caused to be born again to a living hope to be given an eternal inheritance being guarded by God's power through faith being guarded in the new testament that word guarded is used in two ways in, in one sense the word guarded means protected from attack In another sense, the New Testament uses this word to be kept from escaping. So it's either protected from attack or kept from escaping, being guarded by God's power through faith. It's not entirely clear how Peter means to use that word in those two senses. Seems to me he means both. That God is protecting you through faith, for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. That whatever might take away your faith, He's protecting you from that. And God is keeping you from escaping the salvation He means to reveal to you in the last time. Let me explain to you how I think this works. So God is keeping you from escaping the inheritance of the eternal glory that He's keeping in heaven for you. And, and and Peter says that he does this through faith. So the way we could miss out on eternal glory in heaven and the inheritance kept for you, the way you can miss out on that is if your faith failed. So so you end up at the end of your life, no faith, no eternal inheritance. Turn your back on the Lord, have no no issue just the whole thing's a sham. It was all made up, and turn away somehow or another god is guarding you from those things which would keep your heart from keep your faith from fate from failing i think this is really important to peter personally important to him because there's an event in peter's life luke 22 the very last supper that jesus had with peter when jesus says this to peter Pay attention to these words from Jesus to Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith might not fail. And listen to what he says next. And when you have turned again, strengthen. Brothers, I think most of us know what Jesus is referring to here is that Peter would deny Jesus three times while Jesus is being murdered and suffering. Peter denies that he even knows him. M- big, strong Peter, scared of a teenage girl, and he says, "I don't even know who this guy." Is denies him three times. So, in a sense. Peter's faith in Jesus failed, at least partially, but not entirely. Because Jesus gives him these words. When you have turned again, restore your brothers. When you have turned again, when you have. I'm praying for you. I'm hoping for you. I'm pulling for you. Good luck, pal. Go get them. No, no, no. When you have turned back to me. Strengthen your brothers. Not if. So when you take verse four and verse five and first Peter one and you put them together, you'll see two ways of missing out on God's eternal glory. One is that when we get to heaven, God has failed. Like, he didn't keep our inheritance for us. So your faith doesn't fail. You get to heaven. God's, there's nothing there. There's nothing left. Like, I didn't even know you were going to make it. Sorry, there's nothing left over. I gave everything away. It's you. I'd probably still rejoice in that, but even so, that's not going to happen because God is keeping those things for you. God is keeping. So that's one way. If you get to heaven, you don't get the inheritance because it's not there. The other way, you get to heaven, or you don't get to heaven at all. Your faith fails, and, but God says here in verse 5, Peter says in verse 5, that God won't let that happen because God's power will keep you, will guard you through faith. The Bible promises this in Philippians. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. When Paul says that, you can look it up, it's Philippians 1, verse 6, 7. He says, he begins that verse by saying, confident of this, he who began a good work in you will God's not hoping to make His people make it to heaven. He's making sure that it happens. Your faith is not your achievement. It is the trust in Jesus' achievement for you. That which God accomplished in Christ never fails. And all of this means... God is not only keeping the inheritance for you, God is keeping you for the inheritance. Amen? Let's stand to our feet. We do this every week. We want to take a couple of minutes and we're going to sing another song. Because after all, solid theology results in soaring doxology so we're going to sing another song to jesus but while we're doing that it's less of a concern of mine whether or not you sing the words of this song more of a concern of mine is that you would use the next couple of minutes that we have together to search your heart we do this reflect repent and rejoice thing and we do this because i'm going to reread the passage just reflect on what you've heard And if you're a Christian, allow the Holy Spirit to kind of invade your heart and to point out to you areas of your life where you've trusted in something other than Jesus. Some sin in your life, some wickedness in your life. I just want to give you an opportunity to repent of it. And then I'm going to come back after we're all done and I'm going to have the honor and privilege of declaring over you that if you put your faith in Jesus, confessed your sins, you've been made right before the Lord and your sins are forgiven you. If you're not a Christian then I would ask you to use this time to really think these words. Is this this legit? Is this real? Did Jesus really come and die on the cross for my sins? Are we just a historical figure? And I would invite you to put your faith in the Lord for the first time and become born again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the last time, would you give yourselves over to the confidence-building and joy-inspiring words of your God as we sing?